Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Well, we are glad you're here. It's the start of our, our new series. And uh, I'm also glad that uh, tonight we got Pastor... Pastor TK, Tom Kang is with yo, us. Yo. Would you welcome What's Tom up? to uh, the front of the house here? Good to have you. All right? We're All right. good to go, Carol. Well, what if God was one of us? That really is a compelling question. And it certainly is one that kind of bears reflection as we enter the Christmas season. Um, I want to welcome you to this new series, I, God, in which we're taking a look at the images and pictures that we all hold of God and actually compare them with what the Bible really says. And it's interesting because God really did become one of us. I mean, that's why we celebrate Christmas, right? Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate. God entering human history in the flesh. And uh, God became human, one of us, and yet there's a danger in that because the reality is he is not at all like us. And if we assume he is too much like us, kind of like a stern father, or maybe just a warm and fuzzy grandpa, we risk missing out. Missing out on the truth of who God really is and what he's really like. That's right. You know, A.W. Tozer is this Christian author guy, and he basically says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the most portentous or the most important revealing fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. You know, back when I was in high school, I had this uh, football and lacrosse coach, Coach Gallucci. I will never forget this man. Uh, basically, you know, he would have us, he'd be running us on these crazy triple session practices during the summer and whatnot. And basically, after every practice, he would kind of huddle the team together in the middle of the field. And, and if he felt... Like all of us had just spent ourselves, that we left everything on the field, then he would, you know, give us a little pep talk, and then we were off to the showers and we could go home. But if he felt like any of us kind of slacked or loafed, even the slightest bit, he would march us off to these Grand Tetons, is what he would call them. They're basically these hills behind the school, and he would run us and run us and run us until someone puked, right? And you know, strange as this may sound, for the longest time, I thought God was like Coach Gallucci. I don't really know why or how, but, but for the longest time, I felt like everything depended on my performance. And at the end of the day, depending on how I did, you know, and most of the times it was pretty bad, God <laughs> would basically punish me. He'd basically make me run, you know, until I puked or, or something like that. Um, and can you just imagine what that kind of does to your relationship with God. It's interesting because Time Magazine did a survey actually last fall in which they looked at how Americans viewed God. They actually conducted a nationwide poll in which they took a survey and said, what is your perception of God like? And basically from that, they came up with four religious views that the majority of Americans hold. The first is what they call the authoritarian God. Almost a third, 31% of all Americans that believe, is, believe is God is deeply involved in daily life and world events but he's mainly angry. <laughs> mm. 
just, just kind of like Coach Chigalucci, kind of ready just to kind of, you know, punish those who are falling short, kind of breaking the law. Uh, that kind of gives rise to like the cop around the corner mentality, you know, like when you're speeding along, it's like, oh, you know, you see the guy with the speed gun, you slow down because he's like just waiting to nail you and ring you up. Kind of interesting demographically, 53% of all African Americans hold to that view. Kind of interesting. 23% believe abortion is always wrong. And so social issues kind of follow with that. That's the authoritarian God they found. But on the other hand is the benevolent God. Almost a quarter of Americans believe that God, he's involved in life and stuff. And he's mainly a positive force who's reluctant to punish. Um, in many ways, it's kind of like, um, like, like sweet old Santa. You know, I took my kids yesterday to go, you know, meet Santa, you know, in the mall, whatever. And you know how that goes. It's like, he, you know, he says to me, he goes, have you been naughty or have you been nice? Right. And, you know, my, you know, my little girl's like, you know, I've been nice. And he goes, you know, my son is like, how have you been? She's like, naughty. You know, <laughs> she answers for him. And they both get the same gift anyway. You know, they both get a candy cake coming up. Because at the end of the day, Santa is a soft grandfather and he's not going to ring you up. So what does it matter? Benevolent God. Sweet old Santa. Right. And then you got the opposite of that. You have the critical God. 16% of Americans say that they believe in a God who actually doesn't interact with your life, doesn't interact with the world. But when and if he does, he's always unhappy. He's, uh, there's always something going on that he's upset with. He's very judgmental. He's very critical. It's the whole idea of this sort of talent show judge. You got the boo, Simon Cowell, going on. <laughs> kind of wincing as you struggle through life and right. blow it. The fourth one, the last image that they realize people hold to pretty pervasively is the distant God. 24%, almost a quarter of Americans that believe God is distant and doesn't really interact with the world. So he's neither critical nor benevolent. He's kind of detached. More like a cosmic force, like this divine watchmaker who like kind of wound up the universe and just set the laws of nature, you know, in motion. Now, what's interesting about this, check this out. Who believes that? A quarter of people. Almost 37% of those with household incomes over $100,000 believe God is like that. Why is that? You know, I made this money. He had nothing to do with it, right? Interestingly enough, also 42% of Jewish people believe God is a distant God. So it could have something to do with tragedy. Like you think the Holocaust, like if God was close and he could have interceded, why didn't he? He must be distant. So take a look at these, like a cosmic slot machine. That's kind of what we call it. It's like you never know what you're going to get. Life is a box of chocolate, so it's kind of random. Now take a look at these four and tell me which view are you most likely to identify with? Which of these four, A, B, C, or D? You'll notice, let's make this live, in fact. In your bulletin is a connection card, looks like this. Can you pull that out? We gave you a pen, and here's what we want you to do. If you'd be willing to take the risk, just write your name down there. You can just put your you know, name, initials, whatever. And then right next to it, A, if you say, I identify most with the authoritarian view of God. That's kind of how I see him, Coach Gallucci. Right. Or B, benevolent God. You know, it's Christmas. Or C, critical. You know, I feel like I'm always disappointing him. Or D, kind of like, I just don't think he's that involved, you know. He maybe in some vague way, but not really in the details of my life. So A, B, C, or D, write down your name and write next to it. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to collect all of these at the end of the service. And if you're listening, watching online, you guys go on liquidchurch.com. You write that down as well. Let us know what you think. We're going to collect these and we're going to do our own survey. And we're going to see how much that skews kind of with the, uh, with, with the national survey there. Um, I mean, depending on where you are coming from and how you've envisioned God your whole life, you have to admit, God looks very different to different people. Excuse me, do I know you? Not as well as I like. 
I see you got my house phone. Okay. That was you. You sent those. What are they for? Hey. Genesis chapter six, verse fourteen. I want you to build an ark. You want me to build an ark? Yes. So that's why the tools and you are responsible for the wood. All right. Well, uh, let's just start over. Ha <laughs> ha. Hello. I am Evan, Evan Baxter. Baxter. Born June fifteenth, nineteen sixty-two. Eight pounds, eleven ounces. Mother's Carol Ann Parker. Father Eugene Evan Baxter. Ooh, you have internet access. Very impressive. Do you also have cable? You're a clean freak. You care much too much about your outward appearance. Your left nipple is a quarter of an inch higher than your right nipple, and when you were a little boy, you were afraid of Gumby. Who are you? I'm God. You're God. Yes, and I want you, Evan Baxter, to build a mark. Okay, you know what? This conversation is a little thing I like to call over, but I gotta get going because, frankly, I have an ark to build. Busy, 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 busy. Nice meeting you. Take care. Oh, and <laughs> you know, I have to admit, I never thought of God as a black guy in a in a white suit. <laughs> I mean, he's not Asian. Yeah, we all assume kind of a Mr. Miyagi kind of thing going on. I don't know. But anyways, you know, just let's think about this for a second here. I think everyone agrees that everyone has some sort of concept about God and who he is and what he's like and that these sources of these ideas come from all sorts of places like, you know, Hollywood, your kind of Sunday school horror stories or someone in the family or something like that. But what we want to remember here is that the Bible is actually, when it's read, as it's intended to be read, and that is a love letter, not some sort of legal document, that the Bible is actually a great source for encountering God for who he really is, because the Bible is basically God's revelation about himself. You see, it's not just this string of kind of random, inspiring stories. It's a lot more than that. It's a special revelation of the character and person and message of God. And so what's great about that is, you know what? We don't have to play these guessing games anymore. We don't have to go by those things. We don't have to wonder or speculate as to what God might be like because we actually have something more substantive than speculation, something more substantive than superstitions, something a little bit more compelling than even the most charming Morgan Freeman showing up on your front lawn. Let me show you what we're talking about. If you would just turn to the first chapter of Romans, okay? That's on page 781 if you're following along in the seats. We'll have a little bit more lights for those people in the seats there. Um, and as you're turning, I just want to remind you, this is the Apostle Paul's letter. He wrote this to the people of Rome, and he was actually ca- communicating to people. If you remember, the Romans were like, they were an advanced, pretty sophisticated kind of people, and they had their own ideas, or two, or three, or four, or six, or twelve, about who or what God was like, or what she was like, or he, I don't know. Do you remember this? The Romans had a lot of gods and goddesses. Cupid was one of them, Mars, Mercury, Diana, Neptune. And that's to say nothing about all the feuds between the gods and the goddesses. The love, the betrayal, the juicy dramas. See, here's the deal. The Romans projected all the human qualities and attributes that they had onto the system that they came up with the gods and goddesses might be like. So the Apostle Paul here in Rome is literally one of the first to challenge the people in Rome to think differently about God. So now check out how he starts. Would you just, let's start with verse 17. Okay, look at there at chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, 
You just do me a favor and kind of circle that word there, revealed. Okay, and then skip with me to the next verse, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed. Now, let me just pause here and touch explicitly with what Paul is doing implicitly, and that is this. He reminds this very sophisticated, cultured, educated, you were talking about savvy audience, much like the one we have here, much like you guys listening on the internet, right? He reminds this very sophisticated audience, hey, hey, Romans, check it out now. You are aware, aren't you, that in spite of all your philosophy and deductive reasoning skills, in, in spite of your uh, you know, specific and very specialized system of gods and goddesses, you do realize now, Romans, that you don't know jack about God, especially. You don't know jack about God, especially unless, of course, he's, what's that word again? Revealing himself to you. Come on now, Romans. You you, you knew that, didn't you? I, I mean, I don't have to remind you of that, right? And so for us, it's like this. We need to remember That ultimately the truths about God are ultimately never deduced, they're revealed. In other words, you don't know God because you're sharp as a tack, and many of you are. No, ultimately we know God because he condescends himself and he reveals himself to us. He takes off these sort of, these robes and he exposes himself to us. Think about this now. Just look at the way Paul put it. Everything from the righteousness of God, you can be the righteousness, the righteousness of God to the wrath of God. You're the wrath of Khan, wrath of Kang. The righteousness of God, everything from the righteousness of God to the wrath of God was revealed. It was revealed. That's an incredibly humbling, sobering, but but at the same time, very kind of liberating truth. Why? Because all of a sudden, I no longer have to have the answers. I no longer have to be smart enough or just just gosh darn good enough to kind of reason things out. I don't have to have all the answers to the divine, metaphysical, philosophical, you know, existential questions of the universe. Everything that God wants me to know. Everything he wants me to know. Everything that's important. Everything that's essential for me to understand. Everything about himself about life, and about all of this stuff and what it's all about, God has ultimately revealed from his righteousness to his wrath. No, just wait, just stop there. From his righteousness to his wrath. Because that's where I have the problem. If you're like me, that's where I get hung up. Because it says the wrath of God is being revealed. And I'm like, that's great. I get the, this is God's revelation. Get it. But I start thinking, when I hear that word wrath, I start thinking fire and brimstone, right? Here's that authoritarian God. Here comes Coach Gallucci in the clouds, right? Right. Who's going to hurl down these thunderbolts of lightning and, you know, just kind of smiting people left and right. And it's like this whole wrath thing. Honestly, it really bothers me. And I'm not sure, some of you are like that. You're like, I'm not sure I want God to reveal himself if that's who he really is, if he's bloodthirsty and vindictive. No, I totally understand I, I, exactly what you're saying there. And it, and, but it's exactly here where it starts to get interesting because you see three times, very specifically 
And very clearly, Paul shows us exactly what this wrath of God looks like. Because for us, when we think of wrath, we think of anger, right? We think of this rage, this hostile sort of thing. But Paul reveals to us a very different kind of wrath of God. Look with me here at these next three verses. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Skip with me two verses to verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to the shameful lusts. And finally, last verse, verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he, what? Gave them over to a depraved mind. See, three times, right? There's this emphasis being placed on this concept of giving over. Now, let me... Let me ask you something. Where, where in those three verses, where in this passage is this raging, cosmic, alcoholic, you know, very violent sort of father that slaps around his kids because he's having a bad day? God, that we all fear. He's not there. He's not there. Why? Because that idea, that thought about God, that's actually a, a product of our own Thinking, that's what we project onto God because that's how we react in human anger. You, you know what I'm talking about here, right? You, you're, you're, let's say you say you're running late, okay? I, I'm running late for something. I need to be somewhere that I'm not just yet. And I, I'm running late and I'm hungry, of course, right? And uh, I'm trying to get into a lane or, or, or some guy cuts me off. And, and right then and there, my, my sweet, lovely wife, she calls me and uh, time is just perfect, right? And how do I answer? What do you want? Right? I would never do that. All right. That, that happens to me, though, right? And that hostility, where is that coming from? That's just coming from my stress, right? That kind of hostility comes from, you know, some sort of rejection or hurt. It, that's a very human wrath. That's not divine wrath. No. That's not God's way of getting angry. He doesn't foolishly lash out in short-sightedness. I do. Maybe you do. Okay? But God doesn't. As a matter of fact, God, check this out, God is never, never abusive. God is never short-tempered. He is never self-absorbed with himself in his wrath. On the contrary, a more accurate picture of God's wrath, instead of this boom, 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 and hostile and violent, it's, it's, it, a more accurate picture is actually this sort of heartbroken Withdrawal. It's this heartbroken withdrawing of his presence from your life. And it's right there in those three verses. God gave them over. God gave them over. He gave them over. You know, it's funny. The Greek word used there to describe this sort of divine wrath, this giving over, is the word parodidomai, which literally means to entrust or to commit. And these words, you'll understand, they, they carry with them this notion of care, of love. In other words, it's this sort of reluctant acquiescence. There's this kind of reluctant withdrawal going on. Now, mind you, we're still talking about wrath here, but we're using words of love. Yeah. Yet God, who is love, even in his wrath, is pregnant with love. It's this sort of you know, I've only been a parent for three years, but it has this sort of parental tone to it. It has this sort of parental loving quality to it. Like, you know, when I was in college, is this thing being taped? <laughs> when I was in college, I, um, I used to smoke. I used to smoke about two packs a day, especially during finals and midterms. 
And, um, you know, I would, I would just smoke and smoke. That's how I dealt with stress, and that's how I dealt with a lot of things. And I would just smoke, 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 smoke. And my hands would reek, and my hair would reek, and I had, still had a lot of back hair back then, too. And, you know, my clothes would reek, my apartment would reek, everything would reek, and it's just a nasty old habit. And I would, I would come home during breaks, and, and, you know, it was so obvious that I was smoking. You know, if, 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 if you know, me smoking in the front lawn wasn't a tip-off, I mean, the smell of it was, right? And my mom would just constantly, she would be constantly lecturing. I mean, oh, Tom, don't you know? I mean, you go to college, don't they teach you that smoking's bad for you? And, you know, she's constantly judging me and criticizing and critiquing me and all this stuff and constantly, oh, please, won't you just stop? And then one day, she just stopped. She stopped. And, and I found her like 30 minutes later. She was downstairs and she was just washing my smoke-reeking clothes. Didn't say a word. Wasn't trying to make me feel guilty, you know, but she was just, just washing it away. And, and, you know, ironically, of course, it was at that very moment that, you know, the lights just went on for me. In other words, God saying, okay, you want to go down the path of self-destruction? I've revealed my truth, but I, I can't force this on you. I'm still shocked that you smoked, but it's going to get past that. <laughs> That's a revelation for some of us. Yeah. This idea of the wrath not being active lightning bolts, but withdrawal. Not when he breaks the rule, we break the rules. He's going to get us. He's heartbroken. Mm. A parental kind of grief. Not short-tempered. I like the phrase that you use there, reluctant acquiescence. Like mm. leaving us to our devices no matter how self-destructive they are. And so he hands us over to whatever it is in our life that we think is so freaking wonderful and important. <laughs> But honestly, it's a lot more usually than smoking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, what is it? That's not what Paul's talking about. What is it that breaks God's heart? What is it that is so offensive that would cause him here to give them over, withdraw his presence from our lives? Well, you know what? Let's, let's take a look at verse 18 there. Uh, chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress. Underline that word for me there who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You, you understand, when you underline that word there, it's, it's kind of like the words that you circled above. It's kind of like actually the antonym of it. Basically, it's this idea of sort of suppression, of, of shoving something down that is just created, that is just meant to come up. Is there something that's meant to spring forth, but you are suppressing it. You are kind of stomping on this thing. You're shoving it down. It, it's, it's kind of like, it, well, well it, it's, it's kind of like this here. We all know what this is, right? Uh, in other words, it's, 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 it's like this where you, you see God wants to reveal himself. God wants to show himself and he wants to, he wants to pop out in our lives and he wants to show who he is in our lives and he wants to, but, but we look at this and we don't, we don't, we don't acknowledge God. We don't thank God. We don't worship God. We don't, we don't do any of that stuff. We're not in awe of God at all. What we do is we, we just, we just, you know, we, we tell God to get back in there and we, we shove it. We just, we just shove him in there. And God, you stay in there now. You stay in there, God. You stay in that tight little box where I can manage you. You stay in that little thing there where I can kind of contain you and hold you. And you don't come out. God, you don't come out until I'm good and ready. Okay? Because I'm not ready for you in my life. You don't come out. And, and when I'm good and ready, I'll play the tune. I'll play the music. And then when I'm good and ready, only then can you... Come out of here. Okay, that's what we do with God. But you know, what, what does Paul say? Paul is saying in this passage, you know what? 
hey, you guys, you don't have a jack-in-the-box. No. You've, you've put God in a box. And that's the real tragedy. Because to put God in a box, Paul says, is the height of denial and intellectual ignorance. Look at what he writes in verses 19 through 20 here. It says, Since what may be known about God is plain to people. Why? Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. In other words, Paul's basically saying that even without the Bible, without this, this specific revelation, without even one, a single Sunday school lesson, if you just took a look, good hard look at creation itself, what has been made, general revelation, you would have a revelation of God. I saw this when Colleen and I went out to the Grand Canyon the first time. Have any, how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? You ever been there? Just amazing. When they say breathtaking, like take your breath away. I remember this. The first time we went there and Colleen and I hiked up there and we stood at the rim, kind of over the railing of the south rim, looking over this, this, this gaping miracle. Mm. I, I literally was speechless. That, that is a big deal for me. Okay? <laughs> it's like, I could not believe it. We remember hiking down that thing, just the shades of you know red rock turning purple and orange, kind of the sunset. And we got to the bottom. And there's like the Colorado River because the sun doesn't touch it a lot. It's like, like this ribbon of like emeralds. It is incredible. It's like breathtaking. And you look out over that thing. Again, even if I had never heard the name Jesus before in my life, I would have been like, there is something or someone so much bigger, so much other, so much more powerful than me at work here. God says, I have put my eternal power and display in my creation from what's been made. You can understand something about me, about my love of, of order, of beauty in what you see. Parents, you know this. You know this. Remember looking at the hand of your first child for the first time? Remember that? I remember when Chase came out, I just could not stop looking at her hands. The little fingers, the nail beds, right? The prints. And it, it was like, it's a mini me, you know? It's amazing. <laughs> and, and when you encounter those moments in life, right? If you're really honest with yourself at that moment, it's like it would honestly probably take more faith to believe that a master designer does not exist than to believe that one does. <laughs> I love how C.S. Lewis put it. I remember he said, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I don't have enough faith. You see it every day. It is in the way the sun rises every morning, the intricacy of a leaf, the miracle of a baby in your arms. And if you're honest with yourself, you just have to maybe admit what Paul says right here. There's just got to be something completely other behind this all. Divine power, eternal nature, immense, incredible, beautiful, and completely other. You know what the word is that the Bible uses to describe that? Holy. Holy. Some of us think that's like a religious churchy word. Like, well, isn't that like a word in hymns and stuff? You know what holy means? Set apart, holy other, completely different and transcendent. In other words, translation, not like me, not like you, not like us, divine. Creation is another way God gives his revelation to us. But what do we do with it? We told God to shove it. Uh, we, we, we told him to suppress it in verse 18. We said, uh-uh, no, 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 no. Uh, we don't like 
that God is holy other. We don't like that he's this divine being. We don't like that he has eternal power. I want to be in control of my life, right? I want to be the center of my universe. I don't want there to be someone bigger and more powerful and eternal and more holy than me. You see, I want, I don't want God's image as he reveals himself. No. Because who, who does that naturally overshadow? It overshadows me. And so what's happening, you see it right here, there's a natural consequence here in verse 21. What happens is this, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. You know, the Greek word here for fools is moreno, which is where we get our English word. There you go. Everyone here knows Greek. See? (laughs) Exactly. Now catch this now. Catch this. Paul is literally saying, what kind of a moron would think that the creator, the, the holy other one, what kind of a moron would think that this eternally powerful divine being could be boxed in? God in a box. Foolishness, according to Paul. Folly. Because when you trade in light for darkness, Hmm. what Paul calls truth for a lie, the big God for a smaller G God, what naturally happens is we begin conceiving of God in our image. Not as he truly is, but we create him in our mind, in our own image. That's what it says. Look at verses 22 and 23. It says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, morons, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. And birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, when we put God in a box, we take the stunning truth of who our creator God is and stuff it. Paul's like, you make a trade-off there. You trade in the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. In other words, we take the supersize, big gulp God and shrink him down into a Dixie cup. One that is ta- tamer, safer, much more controllable and conformed to our image rather than us conforming to his. And so we come up with a God who likes all the things we like, approves of all the things we approve of, has judgment for all the people we judge. Sees the world as the creature sees it, not as the creator has made it. I mean, you want to imagine that. The creature telling the creator what's what. And that he should conform to our image. I love uh, Blaise Pascal, philosopher, who put it like this. He said, God created people in his image on the sixth day. And every day since, people have returned the favor. (laughs) You ever meet someone who is so self-righteous, so certain of their perspective or view of the world, that they actually convey their opinion and their judgment as like stone tablet scripture. Thus saith Tom, right? That's called idolatry. That's literally what the Romans did, said Paul. He's like, they exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal man, idols. In other words, instead of reflecting God's divine character, we we invent a system of God or goddesses that reflect ours. That's literally why the Roman gods were so capricious. They were, they were subject to these like small, petty little human emotions like anger and vengeance, rage, how so they got in arguments. Goddesses in, in the Roman system actually committed adultery and gods held grudges. Gods who were small g gods made in our image, which is a problem. Because our image is cracked. It is not divine. It is not holy. It is human. And it is broken. And that's what happens anytime the creature tries to manage or control the creator. The natural order of things, honestly, look, gets turned upside down. 
It's backwards. And then everything starts to flow in reverse. Look at the example Paul gives in verses 24 through 27. I love this. He actually uses sexuality to illustrate this. Look at this. He writes, Therefore God gave them over. There's that that reluctant withdrawal again. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. There's a trade-off again. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, who's forever praised. Amen. Creator overall, uh uh-uh. Creature, me first. God in the box. And so all of a sudden, watch. Things get turned upside down. Watch. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. The order gets inverted. And Paul's just using sex as an example here. He's like, what started out as a gift, right? The creator gives the gift of sex. Sex within the confines of a committed marriage relationship between one man, one woman. It's like, that, that's out the window because you know what? That's too boxed in. Come on, that's antiquated. That's too restrictive. Don't put me in a box. My desires can't be contained. See, when God goes in the box, we take our cues from culture or our own desires or our passions. I, gotta, I just got to be true to my heart. And we become the ultimate self-reference point for reality, for what's acceptable, what's normative, or what's true. And Paul's saying, in the case of the Romans, this led to sexual confusion. Which in many ways is no different than our day, is it? I mean, if we're to take our cues from our culture, what it's about, what's, what's, what should be normative, it's, just, it's actually a very funny kind of positive one, right? Less restrictive. It's open-minded. It's progressive, right? And particularly in matters of sexuality, right? What's normative is being redefined and mainstreamed, right? Kind of, and Paul's like, that's the natural flow of things when we get this backwards. Because when God's in the box, his, his ideas are restrictive. We replace it with our own. We recreate God in our image and we highlight generalizations to kind of promote our own agenda. Well, Tom, I heard you say God isn't wrath. He's not wrath. He's not angry. God is love. And that means he would never deny any desires I have inside or, 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 or place limits on what's right. No, I want a God who's as progressive as I am and gives me, the creature, the freedom to determine what's true and normative. So we fashion a God represented, for instance, by Ellen DeGeneres. Now, listen, I love Ellen, by the way, okay? This is nothing against Ellen DeGeneres. But she honestly, I mean, she has gone on, on record as promoting, saying, hey, actually, gay marriage, that is on my agenda. That's one of the things I want to see redefined. In other words, the natural order for things is up for grabs. And the greatest virtue in our culture is tolerance, right? Meaning, you know what tolerance now is redefined. Nobody dare claim to know the truth. Because what's true for you is true for you, but not necessarily for me. So stop beating me down. Stop putting me in the box. And that's the God fashioned by, now we're going to, this is going to be interesting because we've been talking philosophical. Now we're going to get real brass tacks. Think of this. That is the God fashioned by the prevailing liberal or left wing cultural voice. Anything goes except everything. If it feels right, it can't be wrong. I mean, that's obvious, right? I, I do, by the way, I, I need to know this. I love Ellen Generous. Like, Colleen watches this. I love her little, would you do right, a little right, dance for us on the stage? You know, kind of thing. She does a great job. At, but, but literally, part of that agenda is loosen up. Yeah. Step into the 21st century and shove that old-fashioned truth back in the box. Now, some of you, I can already see it, are squirming at this moment. Because you're going, oh boy, I can't believe he's going there. Uh, too bad. Uh, because I thought liquid wasn't captive to, you know, old-fashioned uh, cultural standards. Now, on the other hand, 
I know there are others of you who are thinking, finally, he's going there. <laughs> well, about time to let him have it. I mean, about time those people are confronted with the reality of God's judgment because you've got your own image of God in your head, perhaps represented by this icon. There we go. See, for many of us, Pat Robertson represents the prevailing conservative right-wing cultural posture. A finger kind of pointing in judgment at everyone else saying, see what you've done? Judgment is mine. I will never forget the moment after 9-11 happened. And, and the Christian leader goes on the air to broadcast that 9-11 is indeed God's judgment on our nation for all of the gays and the lesbians and pro-abortion activists. I think he like even threw the ACLU in there for good measure. You just throw them all in there. Now, here's my question to you. Who represents God more accurately, Ellen or Pat? You know what Anne Lamott says? You can be certain you've created God in your own image when it turns out he hates all the same people you do. Hmm. See, it's a temptation for every person here, no matter what side of the coin you're on. If you identify yourself as like, well, I'm, I'm more left-leaning, left-wing and liberal because you envision God as warm and fuzzy, accepting of any kind of lifestyle or behavior. Or if you identify with like a red, red meat kind of right-wing conservative cultural posture, which is primarily judgment and condemnation. In fact, let me ask you this. Do you think God is more of a liberal or a conservative? Is God a Republican or is he a Democrat? Left-wing or right-wing? The truth is, folks, God doesn't need wings unless you have him pinned down like a butterfly in a box. And now everyone in the room feels uncomfortable <laughs> because most of us identify, if not feel most comfortable, with one of these two representations of God. I mean, I admit, it's nice when God has the same agenda as I do, right? Whether it's in support of gay marriage or against it, or against abortion, or immigration, whatever the issue is. See, the truth of the matter is, folks, this is not a passage about homosexuality. I have so many people who are like, oh, this is it, and they use this to kind of cherry-pick that text and just kind of nail people with it. That's not Paul's point here. He's making the observation that when we believe that we have the corner on the truth, thus saith Paul, it's more often based on our personal opinion or political persuasion than divine revelation. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying truth is relative. I am saying, could you think a bigger thought about God than the one you're currently holding on to? In the case of sex, if you lean more in that kind of liberal fashion, kind of like, well, one man, one woman, that works for you, not so much for me. Again, it doesn't even have to be, you know, maybe it's just marriage. Marriage is antiquated or, or, or gay lifestyle, alternative, alternative lifestyles. That's, Let me ask you a question before you just dismiss it. Could God actually have standards for sexual relationships that are considered normative or moral without being angry or condemning? Is it possible? If you believe that, could you hold to that truth with humility and love? And when you express it, resist pointing the finger and judging others because God's like, thank you very much. I believe that's my job. Right. Judgment is mine, not Tim's, not Tom's, not yours. You're not God. Or have you so distorted your picture of me that you actually hate the way I care about other people. 
without regard to their brokenness, be it sexual sin or religious pride. Because God is like, see, that's my glory. That's my otherness. Even when each of you puts me in your little box, I extend grace to you both. Why? Because I am holy. Holy other, not like you or you. So let me out of your box and think a bigger thought. What if God was holy, at once completely loving, and yet also just and boundaried? Would you be willing to trade in your image of God, what you assume about him, what makes you comfortable, what conforms to your image, and think a bigger thought? I wonder. See, the Romans had a hard time with that. In many ways, their culture was too far gone. It was too shrill. It was highly sexualized, highly politicized. And the creatures, Paul says, actually just forgot their creator. And God withdrew. He gave them over to what they wanted. The God-less life. Politics, sexual excess, whatever. Question. What would happen if you chose a new path this Christmas? If you actually decided to let God out of his box and embrace the new revelation that Jesus Christ offers. I don't know which of these images you most identify with, but would you be willing to trade it in? Because God doesn't conform to either one of these. Would you be willing to trade up for a whole new way of thinking about him? If you do, I warn you, it could change everything. Yeah, you know, it, it just goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning there, that quote by A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the most portentous or the most important revealing fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. <laughs> so the question is, what do you think about when you think about God? It, it, does whatever it is that your thought is about God, does it, does it, does it square with revelation? Is, is, is it from right here? Does it, does it kind of own up to, to what's been revealed? Or is it more of your, well, is it, it's more of your reflection and what's going on here. Because the answer to this question affects everything you are and do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your revelation to us. Thank you for your Son coming down on this earth and just revealing yourself through him. Thank you for that. Thank you that, uh, that we can really revel, that we can really celebrate in your revelation. And Lord, help us to make the trades. Help us to make the trades that we have. We, we, we think of you one way because of whatever reasons and because of whatever kind of imprinting that we have, whatever kind of projections we put on you. But clearly you reveal yourself in other ways. So Lord, won't you just help us, Lord, to to just kind of see you as you really are. Won't you reveal yourself to us more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.